You're listening to TIP. And how he left a highly paid job at one of the biggest companies in the world to go start a nonprofit that had no real, there was no real like guarantee that that was going to succeed. But he just went to Nepal one, t- one day and while he was at the job and gave 10 books that he had that he took for himself on the trip to the kids. And he saw how big of an impact that had. So as soon as he got back, he started just emailing everyone he knew and gathering all these books and sending it over to Nepal. In this week's episode, I bring back Jeffrey Donis from the Donis Brothers to talk about how they've gone from high volume wholesalers to multifamily syndicators. Jeffrey Donis is a real estate investor and syndicator having started with wholesaling and single family investments. His brothers and him have now built a six-figure business through cash-flowing rentals. For their apartment syndication and real estate business, Donis Investment Group, Jeffrey is mainly responsible for raising capital and investor relations. He is also one of the co-hosts of the Real Estate Monopoly podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode as much as you did the first one with Jeffrey and his brothers. Let's dive right in. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Real Estate 101 podcast. I am your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I bring back one of the Donis brothers, Jeffrey Donis. Jeffrey, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back, Robert. Uh, it was great seeing you a few weeks ago, meeting you in person for the first time. Uh, and it's awesome to be back. So I definitely appreciate uh, you giving me the opportunity again. Yeah, it's been a pretty cool experience to be able to go to the the conferences and meet a lot of people that I've I've been able to chat with on the podcast. I've chatted with obviously a lot of people and usually it's just here on Zoom or now Riverside and it's just video. And so it's cool to... I've been to two or three conferences this year so far and I've been able to connect with a lot of people in person. It's been great. But I last had you, you and your brothers on the show about a year ago now. I can't believe it's already been that long, but that was back on episode 80. Today, it'll just be you instead of all three of you but give us an update on where you guys are at now compared to where you were before. Last time we talked, you were still wholesaling a ton and we're just about to get started with multifamily. Back then, we were really new to the multifamily space. I don't think we'd done the deal yet. But since then, thankfully, and thanks to God and all that, we've been able to get into a, a few deals so far. So there's been four different projects that we've co-sponsored on. Uh, that puts us a little over a thousand units, and also finally got one under contract that we're not. We can't technically talk too much about because it's a five hundred six B deal, but we finally put it under contract last month. So that's something that we're working on now as well. Things have been going very well, thankfully, and very grateful to be in the position we're in now. So when you say co-sponsor for people listening who haven't heard of that before, what does co-sponsor mean? It's just typically a lead sponsor on a multifamily syndication deal in my opinion, is someone that's either going to sign on the loan um, and also someone that finds and sources a deal, uh, meaning that they go and they're direct to the broker. And we just brought value. And in exchange, we earned a seat at the table and equity in the deal. Is that how you've done all four of the deals so far? Yes. Yes. The first four were done that way. Uh, and the fifth one that we're working on now, we're going to be lead sponsors on. We found it. So I, I, I would say we, so it's my team, my two brothers. I have one of them. His name's Kenneth. He's focusing on acquisition. So he's the one that actually was dealing with the broker and found that deal. 
For those who didn't hear our last episode together, tell us about your why. That was one of my favorite parts. I loved the way that you and your brothers explained your experience and your thought process after you had gone to Guatemala for the first time and how being lower class in the US is still better than than being there. So just kind of walk through that, your experience and your why for real estate. As I mentioned on the last episode, we went to Guatemala for the first time in it was December going into 2021, but 2020 was the year. And we hadn't necessarily got into real estate yet. I think it was 2019, sorry. So I was a college freshman, went to Guatemala, saw the humble beginnings that my mom comes from. And that sparked a fire under us. When we got back, there was no more paralysis analysis. We were taking a lot of action. And that's what kind of got us into wholesaling. Once we were doing that, fast forward, that was the main thing that got us into the space. And really, we were seeing what my mom came from. And we realized that she'd done so much for us. Our real why is first to retire our mother. Uh, she come, she's a single, single mother growing up, didn't have our, our father in our lives. And that really pushes us because she growing up, we saw how hard she worked in regards to providing for us. And she still does. We want to make sure we do it correctly in regards to having enough passive income to retire her and not necessarily do it with active income. Um, we think doing it with passive income will make it so that it's sustainable over the long term. That's kind of the first why. And then after that, we've definitely developed some more whys since we know that we're going to achieve that soon. So what are, what are the other whys? What have you come up with since then? I think the first one's obviously super powerful, but what's some, what are some of the other ones? Maybe are they more personal to yourselves and, and kind of your own lives rather than your family? Yeah. And for me, I look at why and I see what drives me every day. The first one, we now are bringing on investors into our deals. We want to help them live. For us, we, want to, we call it a life by design and empowering their kids and the future generations to live a life by design. Because personally, that's what I want for my life as well. And I know how important it's going to be for me to live the life that I kind of, that I'll be not only excited to live, but that will fulfill me and make me happy and serve a bigger purpose than just going into an office every single day and trading hours for dollars. And that's kind of what we want to instill and empower other people to do. Also for myself, I want to be able to do what I want with my time, have location freedom, time freedom, and then financial freedom. And that way, I, I truly believe that I, I have a bigger purpose here. It leads me to my last why, which is, I don't know if I mentioned this, but while, when I was in Guatemala the first time, I read a book called Leaving Microsoft to Change the World by John Wood. Uh, did I ever bring that up last time? Do you remember that? No, you didn't bring that book up last time. Cool. It's a really good book. I recommend it. Um, it talks about a, an executive who used to work at Microsoft uh, and how he left a highly paid job at one of the biggest companies in the world to go start a nonprofit that had no real there was no real like guarantee that that was going to succeed, but he just went to Nepal one t- one day, and while he was at the job, and gave ten books that he had that he took for himself on the trip to the kids, and he saw how big of an impact that had. So as soon as he got back, he started just emailing everyone he knew and gathering all these books and sending it over to Nepal. And slow and steadily, that kind of rolled into a, a bigger, bigger company. So eventually, he started a nonprofit that creates libraries and schools. And the gist of it, and my biggest takeaway was, if you're able to educate the offspring or a female in an impoverished society, they're more likely to educate their offspring, which means that their kids will now be educated and able to read, which will slowly pull that family out of poverty. So I saw that in my own family. I have a lot of young cousins 
in Guatemala, which there's not many books and there's not many libraries. I mean, they have other things, right? But it's just not necessarily much access to the books that I have here or the access to the information. And one other thing, I know how important reading was for me in my entrepreneurial journey. If I can help them in that way, that's kind of what we want to do. Room to Read is the nonprofit John Wood created. And that's one thing that we want to start donating a lot more money to as you know we grow our business. We talked briefly about how you've done four deals so far. You're on your fifth now. Let's take a step back and talk about how you were getting into multifamily. You have hundreds of units now. But last time we talked, multifamily was really just an idea or was an aspiration that you guys had because you were wholesaling. That was your focus. What was your first step to get into multifamily? For someone listening to the show who wants to get started with multifamily, where and how did they get started? So we started initially with just listening to podcasts and that kind of led us to different things. We heard about syndication through a mentor and then we started looking it up on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and all these types of things. And then we fell on Bigger Pockets and Grant Cardone. And then that led us to um, this book by a, a gentleman named Joe Fairless who runs Ashcroft Capital, which is one of the biggest syndication companies uh, in our space when it comes to multifamily. And he wrote a book called The Best Ever Apartment Syndication Book. The first book that we read in the space was that book. We, all my brothers and I, we all got it on Audible and we sat down for three days and just binge listened to it. <laughs> it's literally all day, every day. That was the main focus was to finish the book as fast as possible. And we took notes. We treated it like a college course and we ended up meeting at the end and discussing, okay, these are the action steps. This is what Joe said to do. Uh, he touched on a lot of things that I don't have to necessarily go into now, but that's how we kind of learned what the syndication was at a higher level, got the gist of what the next steps were, which for us were to start a thought leadership platform, which is where you can act as a credible person in the space that you're looking to break into. And for us, that was creating a podcast kind of like you have here. And also trying to find a mentor if possible that can help you partner on deals especially if you're looking to do larger multifamily, since we didn't have necessarily the commercial real estate experience and most deals that we were looking to do, 100 plus units are done and controlled by real estate brokers. And a real estate broker will only do deals with people that they're confident can close, typically. So if you have no track record, there's not much reason that they would go with you, right? So in regards to what we ended up doing was we joined one mastermind group for $1,000 and it was a very, very good one in my opinion, but it didn't give us the thing that we actually were looking for which was the partner who gave us an awesome course, but we were looking for someone that was willing to partner with us and kind of walk us through with, with any questions that we had throughout our journey. So after that, we ended up falling onto another mastermind group that was a lot more expensive. I'll be completely transparent, but that one came with the team already in place uh, in regards to what you need to do a successful syndication. And the amazing thing is it had a culture and, and a family of other people that were also doing deals. So just being able to have access to a network of people that are doing exactly what you want to do, that's what we had access to at this point. And that's really how we've been able to do the first four. Did you join the programs before you had done your first deal? Yes. And what were your, what were your biggest takeaways from the best ever apartment syndication book? I actually have it on my bookshelf. I just bought it maybe last month. I haven't got around to reading it yet. We talked at the conference that I'm, I'm working on getting into multifamily myself. But so I, obviously that was one of the first books that came up on Amazon. I've been, I've actually been on Joe's show, his podcast as a guest a few years ago. He's been here. It was just one of the books that came up for me to read. And so I haven't gone through it yet, but I'm curious, what are your major takeaways from that book? 
like I said, and I read it a while ago, so I should probably go back and read it again. But uh, the thought leadership platform, we didn't, we had a social media presence, but we now we're dealing with a completely different ecosystem. And initially, we were in the single family space. We weren't necessarily looking to raise money in syndication. Uh, one of the biggest things that you're doing is raising capital. You have to come off as credible, trustworthy, and almost like an expert in the space, which is something that you will be once you start doing deals. But at the time, obviously, you have to build that platform and it does take time. So we had to pick a platform. Um, one, we were already on social media, like I said. So it was really just in that regards, we just started changing the types of content we were putting out there and the aesthetic and all that. We wanted to make sure it looked professional. So that was the first step. But also to start producing content that was consistent and uh, we could also educate ourselves by bringing on awesome people onto our podcast that were already in the multifamily space. And by rubbing shoulders with these people, it works as a social proof concept where you're now hanging out with the people that are, everyone in the space knows and you're sharing the platform and you're kind of putting your face next to theirs. All those things combined will build your credibility when it comes to raising capital because a lot of people will find you online. And if they see that you're doing all these things uh, and you're online and you're everywhere, one, you're building trust. Because if they can find you everywhere, you're less likely to like run away with their money. You know what I mean? If you can like, they can find you easily. Uh, two, if they know about you, if you're putting so much content out there, they're getting to know you and people end up doing business with people they know, like, and trust, right? That's the biggest takeaway I would say. And then also finding a mentor and the value of finding a mentor. That's something that we've always done. We've never been afraid to spend money or to do, invest in mentors or mentorships and things like that. Um, and it's paid off in a in vast, large amount of ways. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, Explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A dot com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. 
You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. You've chosen Jacksonville, Waco, and Atlanta as your three primary markets right now, at least as of we last talked. Why those areas? What did you see in those markets that made them seem like good areas to invest in? Initially, when you're like first starting out, that's the first thing that you'll typically do is pick a market. But in regards to what we our business, our, our initial thought process was, was we're just going to focus on co-sponsoring deals for now so that we can build our track record, gain some education, gain some reputation, and slowly, eventually, as we have that track record and we build these relationships with the brokers, then we can go find our own deals. Um, because we did try to find our own deal at first in our markets, which were North Carolina, which is where I live, but we weren't having success. And for good reason, in my opinion, it was probably because we didn't have the experience yet. Right? Once we ended up co-sponsoring on deals in other markets, that started to improve. We ended up focusing on Jacksonville, Waco, and Atlanta. One, because that was where we had solid relationships with the lead sponsor who came out of our mastermind group. We really liked the person that was leading the deal. We thought they had a similar mindset, similar values, and they also were experienced and knew what they were doing. Also, we looked into the market. So Atlanta and Jacksonville are both markets that we're still in. And they're obviously, I don't know, I'm sure you've heard of Atlanta and Jacksonville and how crazy rent, rental increases are going and how many jobs are moving there. Same goes with Waco. Uh, there was Tesla moving in and a lot of other amazing companies and job growth happening in that those markets in regards to a general gist of what we look for in the market. We look for jobbing, a job moving into the area because where jobs go, people go. We look for population growth. We look for diversification when it comes to employment. So we don't want anything that just is solely heavily reliant on one industry. We want it to be diverse in case one of the industries goes down. The people that are properties are able to pay rent because they can go find a job somewhere else. Um, so these are all different things that we take a look at. Also, we, I mean, I live here in uh, North Carolina, like I said, so none of those properties are too far away for us and the red states in regards to the tenant landlord friendly laws and all that, which is just something that we are definitely keen on finding if, if we're going to invest in any market. The specific properties that you're looking for in those three markets are built after 1970. They're class C and they have some sort of value add component. I want to break down each of those items and your business plan with these properties. For the first one, why built after 1970? Why not 1965 or 1980 or really any other year? Why 1970? To be completely honest, we're working on a deal right now that was built in the 1960s. Moving forward though, we are looking for just 1970s and and up. And our thought process, to be quite frank, one, we're we're value-add investors. So we have certain investors in our database and the investors that we're tailoring towards are looking for a certain return on their investment and in a newer class, a newer type of asset, like a class A property that well, doesn't need much value add. There's less risk for sure, but there's also less return. And in exchange, our investors are not going to be as happy investing in deals like that with our group. So we're focused on value add, which will give off a certain return. So that's kind of how we choose the vintage. And as a property is older, typically that just comes with more deferred maintenance and more work that it's going to need in regards to the value add that you're going to have to implement, right? Uh, if, it's 90, if it's like a 2010, 
it's just going to need less work, which means that there's less improvements that can be made, which means in regards to the value add, there's less you can do, uh, which will overall in, in, in impact your overall return. So that's kind of why we stick to 1970. And I would say now we're looking at 1975, maybe up to 2000. We've never done a deal, like you said, that has been any newer than 1980s as of yet. But moving forward, we, we have deals in the pipeline that are anywhere from 1970 to 1990. Um, it all depends on the market. It all depends on the property itself and how the current owner was operating it. There's just a lot of different factors that go into it. Is the return profile for your investors the other reason as to why you go after C-class properties? And are you, would you say you're only looking at C, C plus? Like are you on the closer to the B range or are you okay with going down to the kind of what some people might consider like C minus range? For sure. And personally, we look at C and, and moving forward, it'll be most likely C closer to B and probably wouldn't want to get as close to A. So it'd probably be C plus to B minus. So that way there's that value add play and we can bring it up to a B plus. And for the next buyer who has a different, completely different type of investor pool, uh, maybe he's looking to just get like a 6% cash on cash return, which will be great for him if he buys that property and his investors may not be looking to hit you know the bar of the park and are just looking to preserve their cash, just looking for something that's reliable in a great market. And that's their play. But for us, there's definitely a different type of approach. In regards to the question, it was C plus, I would say, is what we're looking for, and then probably up to a B minus, if that makes sense. What are you looking for in the value add component? Do you want it to be a large gut rehab, or are you looking for kind of more minor renovations? Definitely uh, nothing too heavy. Uh, that, as we're at like the, you know, the C plus, B minus, when it comes to the, the type of uh, asset, there's obviously lower than C, right? There's D. Uh, and those typically are very heavy lifts where you're going to need to either renovate a majority or all the units and there's a low vacancy or there's a high vacancy rate, which we don't typically look for. Those come with a lot of risk. Uh, that's not our specialty. Our, I would say we really look for properties that anywhere from 70 to 80% of the units may have only been renovated or slightly renovated or not renovated at all, meaning they're classic in the last few years or so. So that way we know that there's some type of deferred maintenance and some potential to improve those units, which will overall increase the amount of income that we can ask in regards to rent. That's the first approach in regards to the value add strategy is improving the in units interior wise. On the outside, you can go in and do paint the parking lots. Typically, there's certain properties that haven't had it repaved in a long time or resurfaced in a long time on a property we're working on now there's a gymnasium in that that hasn't actually been operated, hasn't been used in a few years. And the current owner just never really got around to putting it back up. So our goal was to just go in there. And it's a, it takes a long time to do the project like that. But at the end of it, there's a lot of potential to increase NOI and income with different events you can throw. Getting creative with different properties that we have, that's something that we've definitely been trying to do. What is your general business plan when you're acquiring a property? Are you looking to Are you more on the flip side where you buy it, renovate it, maybe hold it for a year, two years maybe, and then sell it? Or are you kind of holding these assets like refinancing, getting your cash back, holding those assets for five plus maybe 10 years? What is your time frame and and business plan there? Our typical business plan is to go in and initially we're just looking to stabilize the asset and which we mean go in, do our renovations get the property performing at a certain level uh, within the first one or two years. That's the goal is to just go in and do our, our CapEx 
which are the, pretty much the, the value add strategy and actually investing money to improve the, the property and its amenities. Throughout that time period, we're filling the units. We're trying to maintain a low vacancy rate and a high occupancy rate. So that way the property is performing and we have a high NOI. So then around year three, we'll typically try to refinance and get our investors some of their initial capital back. And then hopefully for the last two years, we're anywhere holding from anywhere from five to six years typically, which is when we project in our assumptions going in to sell. The whole period lies anywhere from five to six years. And sometimes we'll plan for a refinance year three. Now, as I'm sure Robert, you're aware, the interest rates are going crazy right now. That's just something that you have to kind of take the chance that, you know, there's a chance that you're not going to be able to refinance year three. So underwriting that in your model before you go in and kind of projecting what it would look like and what your exit strategies can be if you're not able to refinance is definitely something that I recommend. And that's what we do. How do you find your property managers? And then once you find people to consider, how are you vetting them to make sure that they're the quality of property management company that you need for your property? The first thing, and, and the awesome thing about working with partners that are more experienced than you, which is what we do, is they've already been in the markets that we're looking in. Uh, and they also have used property management companies in those markets that we're looking to use. We're really lately, we've been going based on referrals, and then we'll bet the property management company ourselves. So in all the properties that I, I'm working on right now, our partners have already used them or heard of them. And really the vetting process, when you're just trying to figure out what current properties are you managing now, you can go walk those properties, look at them and see how they're, they're managing them. Are they, is there trash out on the street? Are projects kind of like taking a long time? Uh, there are certain things that you can ask them in regards to what their past performance has been. Maybe ask the property management company if you can speak with other companies they've used. Uh, and there's a long list of questions that you can go down, which I'm happy to share with your audience if they're interested. But you can really just kind of get... It comes with all the courses that you, you can go online. So it's very easy to find. And I'm happy to send it to you as well. But typically, we'll first go on a referral and then slowly vet and see what kind of assets are you currently uh, managing right now. In regards to the vintage, what kind of business plan do they have? What's the CapEx budget? And then you compare that to your own. And if it seems like, okay, they're kind of already doing what we plan on doing, now look at the submarket that they're in. And if that's the same submarket that you're looking in, then that might be a good fit. We always like to have one, like I said, that we've worked with in the past because there's nothing that beats past reputation, right? So if you've heard of a property management company wasn't doing a good job, then probably won't use them. That's typically how we approached it. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break and were staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling. 
even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. For that fifth deal that you mentioned earlier in the episode that you're doing yourself, how did you guys find that deal? And how do you plan on finding your deals going forward? Are you kind of leveraging your experience with all of your wholesaling, all your cold calling, all that stuff you did previously to find these deals as well? Typically, the and Bo Berry, who's a well-known broker in our space, Sure, I'm sure you've had him on a podcast or something like that, but he says 90, over 90% of real estate multifamily deals, larger multifamily deals are done with brokers. And that's what we kind of learned to realize. So we were cold calling larger apartment owner, owners initially, and we weren't having much success, to be honest. Typically, they are sophisticated, more sophisticated than a home homeowner who we were cold calling when we were doing single family. So we realized that it'd be more productive and efficient if we were to go just straight to the broker was already doing that and they had the systems in place and that they're the experts at that. So we were just trying to build relationships with the brokers. So that's what my brother does. His name's Kenneth. He focuses on acquisitions and underwriting. What he'll do is first, the first step is to call the broker to get on their list and get their attention. You need to have access to their deals, but they may not want to send you their best deals at first because you don't have the reputation yet. You don't have the experience yet. Initially, you just want to at least start underwriting deals you do that by calling the broker and asking them to put you on their list. I recommend just having your buying criteria ahead of time and maybe keep in mind they're going to ask you questions like what's your track record and experience, having the method that you plan on having in regards to overcoming that objection. If you already have that in place, you'll be more successful. For us, it was leveraging our partner's track record. So that's something that you should definitely just keep in mind. But once you call them, you get on their email list. They start sending you their off-market or on-market deals. Either way, they're sending it to a lot of people. So it doesn't really matter. But it goes out and then you underwrite it. Initially, you'll kind of get like a practice. And eventually, if let's say it works and it pencils out, then you can then try to book a you know in-person tour. So my brother will go out and walk through the deal with the broker, kind of uh, pencil in and take note of anything that he wants to tweak in his underwriting. Maybe one of the roofs will need work and he didn't budget for that. All these things kind of very preliminary, trying to see, okay, if this deal works at this point, 
next step is for us to possibly submit an LOI, which is a letter of intent. So that's what my brother kind of handles. And then eventually we submit that. And then once that's signed and agreed on after negotiations, you go to different things like you first... Okay, sorry, I kind of skipped over some parts. We'll also go and get a property management quote, which we're gonna, we already have relationships with property management companies in these markets. And at the end of the day, they're the ones that are going to be implementing the business plan on the day-to-day because we use third property, third-party property management companies that are on-site. So we just manage them. That's called asset management. It's really important to get a budget from these property management companies that are possibly going to be the ones managing your property to compare it to your underwriting. So they'll underwrite it themselves, and then you compare it to your underwriting. And that's more eyes on it. Two people looking at it, which is awesome. That means that there's just less and less risk of it not being a good deal. We'll also get an insurance quote because obviously you have to pay for insurance. Getting your insurance quote so that you can budget that into your underwriting to understand if the numbers work at this with including the insurance rate, then there's less chance that things will change closer to closing date, right? So once you do all that, and now you're ready to submit your LOI, you do that and it gets accepted, hopefully. And that's when you do your due diligence. And I'll stop there, but that's kind of the process that we get through. And then one of the biggest factors is that you need to raise capital. And I think that's one of the hardest parts about real estate investing for most people, and that is not having enough capital. And because they don't have enough capital, then they have to go find or raise capital. And that's the hard part. How are you and your brothers raising capital for really big deals at such a young age? Uh, initially, like I said, we, the first thing we did was we built an online presence. And I think Branding is one of the most important things that we've done so far. And I'm not going to say we're like crazy successful at it, but at least it's there. And I think we're consistent and we're trying to improve it. And honestly, I think it's been somewhat a benefit and the reason that we've been able to be as successful as we've been so far. The first things that you can do are build an online presence, whether that's on social media. Obviously, you want to have a clean and a professional website. That's what we did. And also just small things like your handle for your email. If it's a Gmail, people are going to take you less seriously. You know what I mean? Uh, so that's one of the things we did as well. And really just setting yourself up to for success. And also treat yourself like you are a big company and you're running a corporation. Because at the end of the day, if that's the goal, then it should start like that day one. Now, obviously, you might be working out of your house or just by yourself, which is fine. But I like to say marketing is the first step in sales. So like really the selling happens before you even get on the call. Uh, a lot of the times I'm able to talk to people and after they've heard me on five different podcasts, they've seen my website, they've looked at the ebooks that my brothers were in, all these different things. And eventually they get on a call with me. Now they've already heard my story. They, they know more about me than I obviously know about them. So it's a good thing. Kind of um, leads it, lead, puts me on that platform of me being on a pedestal of me kind of being an expert in the field, which we have proven through the content. And I think that's probably one of the, one of the biggest reasons in ways for us to actually successfully raise money. Another big thing that we've done was leveraging our partners. Obviously, you know we were, we're young, so there's only so much that we've been able to accomplish so far. But if you're able to find another partner that you can leverage, who has you know a lot of experience and a great reputation and a great track record, you can leverage that and explain to any investor that you know you may you're right. I I may I may be newer to the space than you'd like me to be. But my partners have been in it for over 25 years, have over a billion assets under management. So just keep in mind when you invest with us, you're going to be invested with everyone on the sponsorship team. So that's really what I've been able to do. And successfully, I've been able to raise money in that way is by leveraging other people um, who are on my team. Once you get them interested, how do you pose the pitch? How do you... You got them interested. You did everything you just mentioned. You have a pool of people who are interested. 
how do you close the deal? What are, what are you saying to them? Walk us through that kind of final step. The cool thing about multifamily and specifically what we do with uh, syndication is you are the prize. And that sounds so cliche, but it's just reality. There's not that many... Being on like an insider looking out, you may think that there's so many opportunities in the multifamily space. And maybe right now during this economic environment we're in, it is more difficult to raise capital. But I always like to keep the mindset that one, I mean, I'm giving them an opportunity that's amazing that a lot of people don't have access to, especially on all kinds of deals. We do 506B deals. So we have to have a substantial relationship with the investor, which means that it's already limited. Um, We're not advertising this to everyone, right? You have an opportunity that not many people have. It's an amazing opportunity or else I wouldn't be doing it. And it produces a a great return compared to other investment vehicles like the stock market. It's not as volatile. Uh, And there's also tax benefits that you're possibly going to be able to receive. And a lot of people just invest because of the tax benefits, not even caring about the returns, right? That's certain types of investor profiles. But just understanding that the value that you bring into the marketplace is the first step. Uh, the second step, really, now this is kind of going into the marketing aspect, but you know, send out some email feelers to our investor pool. Eventually, based on the, that kind of feedback, we'll have a webinar. And then that's where like the real excitement, I guess, happens is you present the webinar with my partners. So I'm not alone when I do this. I have my experienced sponsorship team that I'm a part of. All of us are on the call and we're presenting the business plan. We're going over the market. We're going over why we like the deal, what the debt looks like, and what the returns look like. And as you do that, obviously you want to do that in a professional manner, which we always do. So that's how you're successfully able to get that excitement and get investors really excited for the opportunity. And then eventually we have an investor portal that we use. So we'll just tell them to log into their investor portal, which they signed up for before they got accepted into the investor pool. And eventually, they'll go and look at the offering. And on Syndication Pro is the portal we use. There's all the information they need, the summary, the returns, the investor documents, the business plan, all of it is there for them to look at. And eventually, once they're ready to make that investment, they'll go in and there's wiring instructions. So they'll just follow that step-by-step, eventually fund their money in. But for us, really, it's not as much about selling as it is educating and that a lot of this happens before, like like I said, a lot of the selling happens in the marketing. Um, but once you have that relationship, it's also about building the credibility, building the trust, uh, which you can do obviously via phone call, via meeting people in person. We like to do it via email as well. Uh, so we'll send out newsletters and different emails while we're nurturing our investor leads so that they can learn more about our company, our group, and uh, what we do and the kinds of deals we look for. You mentioned in our email discussion prior to the show that you're using bridge debt on a lot of your deals. I've seen on Twitter and I've talked to some pretty heavy hitters in the multifamily space, especially at the conference that we actually saw each other at recently. And many of them were very concerned about bridge debt right now. Actually, Brian Burke talked about this on stage when he and I were on stage. And I believe I remember seeing you in the audience. So I think you probably heard about his concern. How are you managing your bridge debt during this time? In regards to the bridge debt, I think there's just like, I completely agree. I think Brian and honestly, a lot of people that I look up to, like Ken McElroy as well, they're, uh, they think you should get permanent agency debt and fixed rate debt if possible, which I completely think that's a, that's a very viable opinion. And I agree with it in most parts because right now you just don't know where interest rates are going to go. But on the back end of that, I do think like to play devil's advocate with it, what if interest rates do come down? And now you're stuck with like a high interest rate for six years when in fact they could have come down in the next two years. So I think there's risk on either end. But in regards to how we're managing it, one, at the end of the day, if the property's performing and cash flowing enough, 
when it comes to year three of our business plan to refinance. The goal is for us to do that, but we have fixed in options. There's different exit strategies. We could end up selling before year three. If on some of our deals are performing at a, at a rate right now where we're going to hit our year three projections in a few months and we took over last year and then we'll hit our year five projections way before that if we're on trend with what's happening now. We won't even have to worry about the refinance. We could just sell. Another thing that could happen is we have the opportunity, if as long as our property continues performing that way that it has been performing, to just extend the bridge debt and for a plus one with the same terms or perhaps a different interest rate just depending on the option. There's a lot of different things that have to happen. You don't have to necessarily refinance every single time. Obviously, the thing that we'll have to do is communicate that with the investors. But at the end of the day, we're just making sure that we're taking their best interest in mind so that we can get them the best possible return for their investment. And if it makes sense to sell earlier, we would do that. So that's kind of my opinion. We're not necessarily... I think one thing that I do personally is I just have I rely on and have a great team put in place before I even do a deal. I always like to be surrounded by experienced sponsors that have been through different cycles, have been through many different downturns, um, and they've been through this situation before multiple times. Just like Ryan Burke and Ken McElroy, they're experienced. They're saying this because they have different opinions and things. And my mentor, he's obviously comfortable doing certain things. Uh, and I trust in that team because of the experience they have. That's just my opinion. I don't know if that's worth anything. but Yeah, I mean, I guess we'll see. Nobody knows how it's going to play out, right? Brian, he even said he's a little bit more conservative with these types of things. So we'll see. Who knows? The recession might be worse than people expect. It might not be as bad as people expect. Nobody, nobody really knows. And I always like to say, if people say that they know where it's going, then you should run the other way because nobody knows where it's going. And uh, I get that from, from Warren Buffett. But Jeffrey, as we wrap up the show, I want to give you a chance to tell the audience where the best place is to find you and connect with you. Yeah. So you can find me personally on Instagram and LinkedIn at Jeffrey Donis. And then our my brother's social media handle is at Donis, D-O-N-I-S, brothers on every platform, LinkedIn, TikTok, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram. Um, also, we have a free five mistakes playbook that passive investors typically make. You can find that at www.donisinvestmentgroup.com backslash playbook. Feel free to visit that website as well www.donisinvestmentgroup.com to learn more about us. And then our podcast, uh, The Real Estate Monopoly, where we bring on other operators and different people in the real estate space. Uh, free to check that out as well. I'll be sure to put a link to all your different resources and our previous episode together in the show notes below for anybody that's interested in going to check those out. Jeffrey, thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Of course. I appreciate your time, Robert. This is awesome. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.